Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here for what I think is going to be a very interesting uh, discussion today. We're going to have a couple of speakers, and then we'll open it up for questions. And then, of course, um, you'll all be allowed to leave and buy a book. If you don't buy a book, you can't leave. Um, and then there will be uh, sandwiches upstairs. We hear a lot these days, and I think it goes back particularly to the Clinton impeachment and then the Florida imbroglio in 2000, we hear a lot about the polarization of the American electorate. Everything is red and blue, red states and blue states, red counties and blue counties, red blogs and blue blogs. Um, you look at the political books that are being published these days, and there's basically two kinds. There's the ones who say their opponents are traitors, uh, the ones who say their opponents are cynical manipulators of stupid Kansans, um, the ones that say their opponents are liars. And to be fair, they've all got a point. Um, but all of these books are designed to appeal to the base, and they tell the two political parties appeal to the base. There are no more swing voters. That's what we were told in 2004. No more swing voters. The only issue is turnout. You've got to get your voters to turn out, and each party defines its voters in a whole series of ways, economic, cultural, political attitudes, and so on. But I think that's not the whole story, and uh, David Kirby and I are doing some research right now that we hope to publish soon that shows that there's a significant number of voters in the American electorate who are not red or blue because they're basically libertarian, uh, which you might call economically conservative and culturally liberal, although I always think that since the libertarians are the consistent voters, it's like the Republicans are economically libertarian, at least the platonic ideal of a Republican um, is economically libertarian and socially statist, and the platonic ideal of a Democrat is that he's uh, culturally libertarian and economically statist. Obviously, uh, both parties have fallen away from that in mostly bad ways lately. At any rate, one of the pieces of evidence that we have in the research uh, we've done is that libertarians are increasingly swing voters in American politics, less likely to automatically vote Republican. And Ryan Sager, in his new book, warns that Republicans ignore that fact at their peril that if too much reliance on the base may end up splitting the coalition that the Republicans have managed to put together. Um, and so today we are going to be discussing his book, The Elephant in the Room, Evangelicals, Libertarians, and the Battle to Control the Republican Party. Um, I'll introduce our commenter later, uh, but right now I will just point out that Ryan Sager is these days a columnist and blogger for both the New York Post and Real Clear Politics Com. Um, the book jacket for this book describes him as, quote, a conservative and a libertarian, unquote. Those of us in this room understand that it's one or the other, and you're going to have to choose, Ryan. Of course, the jacket also says that the book is both hilarious and sobering, so you can see the pattern in the, the copywriter. Um, on the other hand, I suppose the spending of drunken sailors is both hilarious and sobering, so maybe that one works. Um, previously, Ryan was a member of the editorial board of the New York Post, and he was editorial features editor and chief editorial writer for the New York Sun at its launch. Um, and although his official bio doesn't mention it, 
He was previously an intern at the Cato Institute and my research assistant. And so, although I was not smart enough to persuade him to stay here instead of going to New York and making it big, I am delighted to have him back here at the Cato Institute, not taking notes, but presenting uh, the findings of his first book, The Elephant in the Room. Please welcome Ryan Sager. Well, uh, thanks to everyone for coming out today, and thanks to uh, Michael Barone for being here to offer uh, commentary, which I think I look forward to uh, as much as anyone hearing his thoughts on 2006 and what's going on with the GOP. And, of course, thanks to uh, Cato and David Bose for having me here today. It's, uh, it's always nice to be back at the Cato Institute as GOP-controlled Washington looks more and more like Animal, animal Farm. We've got our own little slice of uh, the fountainhead here, so it's, it's, it's a nice place to be. So, you know, the idea for this book came about pretty much in the aftermath of the 2004 election and Bush's second inauguration. And, you know, basically I looked around at the political landscape. I thought, you know, the GOP has 55 Senate seats, 232 in the House, uh, 28 governorships. They've won seven of the ten last presidential elections. So, you know, really this party is screwed and I have to tell them why. Um, that's what they need, because otherwise they're going to start mistaking winning for actual victory, which is, is not what we see. So, you know, in the year and a half since the idea for this book uh, was born, I think the fact that the GOP is in trouble has become a lot more apparent. Uh, 2006 suddenly looks pretty bleak for the GOP. So, you know, the fact that it's in trouble is apparent, but the reason is much less so. The uh, part of the problem is just George Bush. Uh, he, um, I don't know how many of you saw it last week. CNN did, dot com did this poll. It's a silly poll, but they did um, who would win in a debate between George Bush and uh, Iranian President Ahmadinejad. And so, the basically Bush lost by sixty seven thirty three. Now, even if it's a CNN dot com quick poll, if you're losing to a guy who's been dubbed the new Hitler, you have some public relations problems. So, you know, it's not just Bush though. I think. You know, Bush is definitely a big anchor on the GOP in this election, but there's also something that goes much deeper, kind of a tear in the fabric of the conservative movement that goes much beyond 2006, uh, much beyond just George W. Bush, though he has had a lot to do with ripping that fabric. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today, really. The, um, again, this isn't a 2006 crisis. This is an ex existential crisis for the conservative movement. You know, it came to D.C. to shrink government, and now that we've gotten here, uh, we can't do it. Um, you know, we have one function, and that's shrinking government, and that's not happening. So whether today's social conservatives, neoconservatives, Bush dead-enders, uh, and whatnot realize it, that small government has always been the foundation of the Republican Party, not, not as much social conservatism. If there were one name, one term... Uh, that I'd hope people come away from the book with and this talk with to remember, it's um, Frank Meyer and fusionism. Frank Meyer was an editor at National Review from its founding uh, back in 1955, which was basically the starting point of the modern conservative movement, of course. And he had a concept that he developed over the years, a series of essays, a book, um, and the, the concept was fusionism. The idea was that the factions of the Republican Party or the conservative movement uh, which have always existed in it, the libertarians and the social conservatives, or as they were much more commonly called back then, traditionalists, 
they agreed on two central facts, two things that allowed them to fuse into a working coalition. Uh, one of those was the Cold War, which was an overriding concern for both uh, libertarians, of course, communism being the antithesis of libertarianism, and for social, religious conservatives, uh, communism was godless and atheistic and, and an existential threat to, to our Western Christian society. And so that was one thing. The more important thing as far as domestic policy is that, you know, amazingly enough, looking back from today, they actually agreed on the size of government. They agreed that Washington, D.C. and the size of government was was the problem. Libertarians, again, for obvious reasons, uh, they their central idea is, is small government, but also the traditionalists, because they saw the main threat to uh, our culture and to our morals was the federal government interference from Washington, the welfare state, things that FDR had put in place and that Eisenhower was doing nothing to roll back. Um, they also found him to be soft on communism. That was another issue that helped unite these two, uh, these two parts of the coalition. Uh, kind of the formulation that, that came to be is that traditionalist ends could be achieved through libertarian means. And so this was the working idea that brought the, the Republican or the conservative coalition together, which, of course, then went on to take over the Republican Party and bring us the modern Republican Party. I think when you look back at the history of the movement that you'll find when these two factions agreed, when they got along, you, you saw some big successes. Now, it might be odd to consider the Goldwater candidacy a huge success, but um, even though they lost tremendously in 1964 to Lyndon Johnson, it still represented the point where the conservative movement took over the Republican Party by uniting behind this candidate who was just the embodiment of Western, libertarian, and traditionalist fusionist conservatism. And so out of that campaign came a unified conservative movement. Um, you got a lot of our big uh, conservative pundits, a lot of your big conservative activists, organizations, fundraising machines. All of this came out of the ashes of this 1964 campaign. And it was really after that that we had a functioning, politically effective conservative movement, or what would grow into a politically effective conservative movement. You know, the next, the next step on the uh, Republican story is, of course, Richard Nixon, which didn't turn out so well. But um, what you found there is that he was a president where the conservatives and the two wings of the party never got together. Nixon was you know, seen as the consummate cold warrior, but he was certainly never, um, never a small government conservative. And when he went to China and uh, violated the anti-communist part of this coalition, you actually saw a group called the Manhattan 12 get together, uh, which included... William Buckley and Frank Meyer and some other conservative luminaries, and actually they supported a primary challenge to Nixon in 72. So though he was reelected, there was a real split in this movement, and um, you know, obviously that ended not well. So the height of fusionism really ended up being uh, the Reagan presidency, um, who, you know, again, he very much like Goldwater embodied these two strains in, in one person, somebody who believed and could talk passionately about why people should have the power to govern themselves and, and local communities and also reassured uh, the social conservative wing of the party greatly. Then we moved on to um, Bush 1, which could also be called Reagan 3, because he really never was elected on his own steam. He, he was riding Reagan's coattails the whole time. And so, you know, a lot of things happened during Bush 1 that again led us to a point where the fusionist coalition was in big trouble. Um, we had the Cold War ended, and so that was no longer a uh, significant glue holding together the party. And then, you know, obviously there was the uh, 
breaking of the no-do taxes pledge, which, of course, hurt him with the uh, economic conservative wing of the party and really hurt him with everyone who doesn't like politicians who lie. And so, you know, you saw the coalition completely fracture, Ross Perot get in the race, and Bill Clinton come in. Now, you know, the ironic part of the Bill Clinton presidency is that Basically, Clinton reunited the conservative movement in a way that pretty much nothing other than communism or today maybe the war on terror could have ever done. He, um, uh, kind of as I put in my book, communism, opposition to communism was replaced with op- opposition to Clintonism. And so he, you know, he angered everyone. There was Joycelyn Elders talking about masturbation. There was uh, gay, uh, gays in the military. There was the, the major health care overhaul that they were proposing. And so... You know, all of a sudden you saw that any piece of direct mail that went out with Bill Clinton's face, any ad that had a a candidate morphing into Bill Clinton would suddenly have a huge effect in the 1994 campaign. And so, you know, again, these these factions were united. You had a united conservative movement, fusionist conservative movement coming together. And that's uh, that took back the House and the Senate for us. And, you know. This was another real high point of conservative achievement. Is um, the Gingrich administ- the Gingrich um, not administration, but years were you know kind of gotten a bad rap in retrospect, seen as kind of a political failure. But we got welfare reform, we got a balanced budget, and it's also important to remember you know ninety six um, congressional elections we didn't really lose any seats. We lost a couple in the House. It was we didn't get clobbered after that. It's important to remember that right in the wake of the shutdowns, not that big a loss. Um, yeah, Dole lost to Clinton, but I think that might have happened anyway. Um, and so that kind of brings us up to how did we end up with George Bush? Uh, a lot of us sit up at night thinking about that these days. You know, basically we we took the wrong conservatives, Republicans took the wrong lesson from the Gingrich years. You know that all of a sudden we couldn't be mean, we couldn't uh, actually fight for what we believe in. We had to water everything down. We had to put slogans in front of it. We had to be softer, uh, kinder, gentler, or I'm sorry, compassionate conservatives instead of conservatives. And, you know, there's kind of a debate in retrospect how much did Bush tell us he was going to be a big government conservative and how much did he uh, did he lie? I think that when you look back at the, the debates from the 2000 election, look back at the ads and some of the rhetoric, Bush really did. And, you know, he had the compassionate conservative rhetoric, but he also tried very much to paint himself as a as a small government conservative, and he accused um, Al Gore of wanting big, exploding federal government, which, if that's not what we have now, I'm not sure what that means. Um, So, in in short, Bush lied, conservatism died. Uh, So the death of conservatism during the Bush years was, was kind of immediate. They like to blame, the Bush defenders really like to blame 9-11 9-11 for everything, you know, the, we would have had a real conservative reform agenda except for 9-11. Spending wouldn't be so bad except for 9-11. And I think that that just really doesn't add up. The, the downward spiral started from the first day with No Child Left Behind, which was a complete abandonment of small government conservative principles. They tossed vouchers overboard immediately, uh, nothing really about charter schools and other forms of school choice in there. They just strengthen standards, which are very inefficient and very big government liberal kind of way to try and uh, control the schools, and then they increase spending a lot. Uh, I think you see the other major bills from you know the last six years, and that's there's also again really nothing you can blame on 9/11, the Medicare prescription drug bill, the giant highway and farm bills that have driven spending so tremendously, uh, the atrocity, the constitutional atrocity that is the uh, McCain-Feingold bill. You know none of this can be can be blamed on 9/11 and. Analysis 
from heritage and anywhere else you look shows that the the driving factor has not been has not been military outlays or homeland security though that's not insignificant so you know the so the republican party though they say you know still we don't have a problem we keep winning elections and so you know, I think definitely 9-11, the war on terror, brought us through very, very well in the 2002 midterm elections. It obviously worked phenomenally there. 2004, it barely scraped them by, and I think uh, John Kerry has a lot to do with that, obviously. Just a, a terrible candidate. It's, uh, you can easily say that, see that election having gone the other way if you had a decent candidate who wasn't from Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> and so... You know, I think a reckoning is definitely on its way. Now, that's not to, to necessarily make a prediction about 2006. I think things do look bleak in 2006, and I think, I think there are some races where, where this is very important. But I think 2008 is a lot of where we're going to just have to see a reckoning of where this party is going, regardless of, of how we do in 2006, whether we're going to continue on in kind of a Bush tradition or find some way back to some new form of, of small government conservatism. And I think you really saw that after the um, Katrina debacle, you really saw the doors kind of blow off. People had stayed in line up until then and really stayed behind the president, tried not to, uh, to openly oppose him. But after Katrina, you just you saw Mike Pence, head of the Republican Study Committee, kind of go to war with the administration over spending and pork. And I think, you know, you've just seen the gloves come off. And increasingly, you'll see that as 2008 comes up. So to, to kind of get to the heart of the political uh, ramifications that I'm here to talk about today, you know, talking to a Cato crowd, I guess I'll title this section, Why Libertarians Matter. They are going to matter. Uh, Republicans like to think, a lot of Republicans, a lot of people, our friends over at National Review, and, and a lot of people on that side of the movement like to think that libertarians can't have any impact. But I think if you look at uh, the country regionally, the politics going forward here regionally, libertarians are going to be more important than ever. When you think of the kind of libertarian, social conservative divide in the Republican Party, you can sort of map that, it's not perfect obviously, but you can map it as a divide between the West and the South as far as the Republican Party's coalition, Western conservatism versus Southern conservatism. Basically the traditionalist social conservatives being the South and the more libertarian conservatives being being the West. And so what you've seen is the party under Bush has gone tremendously towards the South, which is going to cause major problems I think in the West. Uh, just to you know, throw out a number, everyone was very obsessed kind of with the, or Democrats were at least, that 60,000 votes in Ohio would have switched the Electoral College in a reverse of 2000's Florida situation. But um, if you look out west, 70,000 votes between Colorado, Nevada, and New Mexico, which were each very close, 5%, 3%, 1% respectively, uh, those 70,000 votes in those three states would have also switched the election. Um, and I think the Democrats uh, know that. And so you have to look at this interior west, these eight states off of the coast, which is already blue. We already lost California on our on our tilt south. We've already lost a, a very big and important electoral prize. So you have to look at these eight states and say, where you know where are they going? What what trends are going to affect how Republicans do there, and where are those trends moving? So you know, one thing to look at is in 2000 there were no Democratic governors in these eight states going down from Montana to New Mexico. By 2004, you had four governors that were Democratic in those states, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, and Wyoming. And Montana just in 2004 elected uh, Brian Schweitzer, who's kind of a, a prototype for this Western Democrat who can go out and appeal to hunters and appeal to um, fiscal conservatives. And he was the first, if I didn't just say this, first uh, Democratic governor there in 20 years. 
So the Democrats uh, kind of understand that there's an opportunity out here. There's a new group called Democrats for the West that has been formed, uh, a lot of activists and old elected officials from that region, strategizing, figuring out how to craft a Western Democrat Democratic message. And so, again, the, the demographic trends there are not good for Republicans. First you have, uh, which doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't need a ton of commentary from me, but first you have the Hispanic rising Hispanic population, and despite a lot of hullabaloo from Republicans about how well Bush has done with Hispanics, you'll find that that doesn't really translate beyond Bush, and it's also not tremendously better than Reagan. You know, Reagan did okay among Hispanics, but it's not a tremendous improvement on how Reagan did among Hispanics. So, you know, despite doing okay at the presidential level, at the congressional level, the Hispanic voters still go two to one or three to one, depending on the poll you're looking at um, in a generic ballot against the Republicans and for the Democrats. And you haven't seen any major switches in party identification among Hispanics either, from Democrat to Republicans. So, uh, as of now, that's and especially with Republicans really hitting the uh, immigration drum, that's that's not a promising group for us right now. Um, second, uh, and this is an important one, is that the interior West is significantly less evangelical than the South. Um, what you'll find, uh, in a, if you look at the percentage of evangelicals in each state, you'll find in the eight states of the interior West, that's about 29 to 34 percent. They're all in, in that fairly narrow band, which is, is just far under what you find in the southern states that make up so much of the bulk of the Republican Party right now, 73 percent evangelical in Mississippi. And even Virginia, which is almost a purple state at this point, 41% evangelical. And so, so there's a big drop-off out west in the number of evangelicals and the religiosity out there. And another demographic trend that's, that's fairly important is kind of a migration that's happening out from blue California into the red interior west. You see uh, telecommuters, uh, young workers looking for better for jobs and for a better real estate market really filling up. You know, as people are more mobile and where you are matters less to, to what you do as far as your work, you're seeing a real filling up of the interior west by blue states, particularly California. Uh, 18% of Nevadans are ex-Californians. 9% um, of the incredibly small Idaho, 9% of them are Californians. 8% in Arizona. So, so between the evangelicals, the, his, the less evangelicals, the Hispanics, and the Californians, you've got three major demographic trends that are really purpling that region. And aside from the demographics, there's also a major ideological component, which is that the West, we all sort of know by, by stereotype and by image, is, is more freedom-oriented, more leave-me-alone-oriented. Um, but I also um, I spend a significant amount of time in the book kind of on some of the data on this, which is... Some of you might be familiar, Pew does these political typologies where they kind of try to map people into different groups and figure out where they are in a very long questionnaire of issues and break it down by demographics and region. Usually they break it down just uh, the West all is one, um, one entity which mixes in California, Oregon, and uh, Washington with the, the, red the blue states with the red states, essentially. So for the book, what I did is I had Pew kind of break off the interior West and then look at... Uh, how much more libertarian it is and how it compares to the South. And what you find is essentially that, that really this is real. There is a real libertarian streak running down from Montana to New Mexico. You'll find twice as many in the interior West say things like, religion's not that important to me, as say that in the South. Um, they're much more accepting of, you know, homosexuality is a lifestyle that should be accepted, the West much more than the South. Uh, the South is much more into banning books that they disagree with the content, the West not as much. You see it in some of the ballot initiatives, too. You'll see um, 
medical marijuana initiatives in Nevada, Colorado, Montana. And, you know, this puts them in the company of some of the bluest states in the nation. The Patriot Act, there have been um, resolutions passed against that in Colorado, Idaho, Montana. Uh, no Child Left Behind, the, the two states that have kind of rebelled against that, passed laws saying, you know, stay out of our local schoolhouse are Colorado and Utah. And so, you know, you see the emergence of how the Democrats could craft a message that the Republican Party is no longer about small government. It's no longer about fiscal conservatism. That's an especially, especially easy argument for them to make this year and, and going forward. So, you know, so go with us. We are the leave you alone party now. We are the smaller government party now. Now, that's a tough, tough sell in a lot of ways. They, they are going to have, I'm not saying this is an easy sell for them, but it's, it's a possible message and it's one they're really exploring and that they've had some limited success so far. Again, Schweitzer, um, Ken Salazar, kind of uh, one with a message like that in Colorado and, and the Colorado uh, legislature uh, turned over to some extent on dissatisfaction with the social conservatism in that state. And so, you know, with the West being such a problem, looking towards 2008, I guess the question is, what can the Republicans do to fend this off, to keep the, to keep the interior West happy, to not lose all the libertarians and, and start this realignment, which would be very, very damaging to the Republican Party? I mean, I guess uh, what I call for really in the book is a renewal of fusionism. I mean, I think a lot of people have forgotten that this bargain exists even. Um, and I think the social conservatives especially have forgotten that they used to believe in small government and that looking towards big government to ensure the morality of the country isn't exactly a smart move. Uh, I think something they'd wake up to if Hillary Clinton was elected president in 2008, but it'd be nice if they realized it before then. So, you know, two major areas where they could, we could find some real common ground between these two factions and also... Uh, make some real inroads with, with populations we don't necessarily do great with is uh, one thing would be a renewal of interest and commitment to school choice. Um, vouchers is an issue that has tremendous impact with uh, the libertarian wing of the party. This is something they love. And uh, it's something that is also tremendously important to the socially conservative wing of the party, which isn't always thrilled with government schools teaching their kids about uh, uh, things they disagree with uh, in science and, and in and morality and sex ed. And so, you know, school choice is uh, one thing that they should look to. And that would also, um, incidentally, make tremendous inroads. It already has, I think, a little bit in places like Ohio and, and even, in a way, in New York, uh, in black communities and Hispanic communities who are really the communities that get screwed in our current school system and that um, respond very well to having other choices. The second uh, the second area that would be important is to kind of take on the mantle of, of what might be called cultural federalism. Uh, the idea would be to really kind of drop the national crusade against gays, as, as amazing as that might sound to, to the current Republican leadership, and to say that if Massachusetts or Vermont or Connecticut wants gay marriage, wants civil unions, you know, that's their business. We're going to stay out of the way unless there's some major constitutional crisis, which we're far away from since no federal court has really gotten into this issue yet. So to stay, away from, to stay away from that at a federal level and to, to be more tolerant on that issue, I think you can also see with things like medical marijuana, assisted suicide, there are a lot of areas where the Republican Party could be, you know, nobody is going to be forced to partake in these more liberal laws, but they can really just, you know, get back to their leave-me-alone roots and, and start, 
start being the party of small government again. And so I'll just uh, leave you with one quote from Frank Meyer, who, again, is, is the one person I think it'd be very beneficial for a lot more of us to read and to know about and his, his ideas on this, this coalition. Um, writing about kind of the, the tension between liberty and, and authority, he wrote that truth withers, truth withers when freedom dies, however righteous the authority that kills it. But free individualism, uninformed by moral values, rots at its core and soon brings about conditions that pave the way for surrender to tyranny. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I gather your message is the Republican Party should wake up. I'm a little scared to think that the Republican Party hasn't been trying as hard as it could so far um, and that they might get more aggressive at whatever they now stand for. But hopefully they would wake up and remember that they did come to power at one time as the avatar of the Leave Us Alone coalition. We have uh, the best possible political analyst uh, that we could get to comment on this book about a new way of looking at politics. As I'm sure everyone here knows, Michael Barone is the principal co-author of the Almanac of American Politics, which is the principal reference work for everybody in Washington. He's also a senior writer for U.S. News and World Report, uh, writes a weekly column and lately blogs as well uh, at the U.S. News site. He's written for all sorts of publications from The Economist to The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. Uh, Michael is the author of, uh, I believe, three books, not counting the almanac. Um, He published a political history called Our Country, The Shaping of America from Roosevelt to Reagan. Uh, A few years ago, he wrote a book called The New Americans, How the Melting Pot Can Work Again. And that, of course, is timely again and has just been reissued in paperback. And he also wrote Hard America, Soft America, Competition versus Coddling and the Competition for the Nation's Future. He was also, back in 1980, one of the first analysts to point out that not everyone in America is a liberal or a conservative and that indeed a sizable chunk of the country is what he called then conservative on economic issues and liberal on cultural issues. So he anticipated this discussion of the not quite red and blue America many years ago. Please welcome Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, David, and it's uh, a pleasure to be here at the Cato Institute, where I always feel free. Um, the uh, I want to congratulate <laughs> Ryan Sager on writing. Is this your first book, Ryan? Yes. The first of, I'm sure, many illuminating books. Uh, <clears throat> and to point out that the, he did commit uh, one act of heresy, I think, from the point of view of uh, this audience here, and I refer on page 21 where he referred to Frederick Hayek's uh, The Road to Serfdom as a slim volume. Um, It seemed fairly hefty to me when I read it uh, recently, a few years ago. Uh, I find myself um, in a position of agreeing in large part with what Ryan has said, but but disagreeing as well. And uh, my comments here, I'll probably stress the disagreements more than the agreements. Um, although uh, I think that uh, his overall point uh, that the Republicans would probably be well uh, suited to uh, move in a somewhat more libertarian direction uh, is probably correct. 
Um, I, I don't agree uh, with his point, uh, Bush lied, conservatism died. I think uh, um, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain anger in this book, which I take to be a young man's book. Uh, and in 40 years, we'll see the more mellow works uh, of Ryan. The, um, I, one area which I would disagree, or at least try to see things in a somewhat different perspective, is that I think um, our politics today, uh, national politics in some ways, is more a matter of candidates than of ideas. Um, I, we have seen an identification, uh, by and large, of the conservative movement with uh, the George W. Bush candidacy and presidency that is, in fact, unusual. Uh, as Ryan points out in his book, um, you know, William F. Buckley did not endorse Dwight Eisenhower uh, for president in the 1950s. The conservative movement historically was one which saw itself as oppositional uh, to the political parties. And in fact, to the extent that uh, National Review and Bill Buckley supported segregation, their allies on that issue were primarily Democratic politicians in the 1950s and early 1960s, since most Republicans uh, favored civil rights legislation. The opposition was primarily from Democrats. Uh, Today we're in a different situation, and I think the current state of polarization of our parties and of the rough alignment of uh, liberals with the Democratic Party, uh, self-identified conservatives with the Republican Party, is in part an accidental matter of candidates. Uh, we've had two presidents now, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, who were born in 1946, generally thought to be the first year of the baby boom generation. Uh, members of the high school class of 1964, which was the high uh, peak SAT score high school class in American history. Uh, a generation, uh, an age cohort that was sharply split in its responses to, uh, particularly to the Vietnam War. Um, which uh, major escalations of which occurred during their first year uh, in college. Uh, And Bill Clinton and George Bush uh, just happened to have um, personal qualities and characteristics, which those on the other side of the cultural divide absolutely loathe. Uh, I don't have to go down the list, but uh, they, they, they have been tremendously polarizing figures. Uh, curiously, both of them at least ran for president with platforms that made some bow at trying to be moderate. Um, you can argue how much so, uh, but I think an argument along those lines can be made. And yet they both ended up being tremendously polarizing figures. Uh, in somewhat different ways. Um, they, they are people who, uh, uh, in effect, go with uh, the stereotype uh, of their cultural constituency. This hasn't always been true in American politics. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was not a stereotypical Democrat. His personal background and surrounding was much more typical of the caricature of Republicans in those days. Uh, John Kennedy, our first Catholic president, had the uh, poli- had the bearing of an English lord, uh, not uh, not of the typical Irish politician. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, was not um, a characterization of the big business wing of the Republican Party or anything else. He was, for better or worse, uh, himself uh, a more or less self-made man. Um, so. 
I think a lot of our political alignments and a lot of our arguments here uh, are, uh, are artifacts of these candidates. Uh, and one thing we know, 2008 is going to give us a different cast of characters at the head of national politics. Uh, in my column in U.S. News this week, which I warmly recommend to you, uh, I, uh, I made the point that uh, the leading candidates in the polls for the two parties' nomination are, number one, but intention, uh, if not opposition, to what have been their party's base support groups. Uh, and secondly, um, those candidates, to varying extent, uh, about them, we know more than we usually know about presidential candidates about how they could handle a crisis. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, do you have to ask how he could handle a crisis? No, we know the answer. Uh, and uh, we know that, unlike what most voters think of George Bush now, he's also can handle the details over a period of time. We saw that with his crime control uh, program in New York City, welfare reform in New York City. Uh, John McCain, in tension with the Republican base on many issues, uh, at least one of which Ryan brought up, the uh, anti-First Amendment McCain-Feingold bill. Uh, I, I better not, if this is broadcast, I better not say anything nasty about a member of Congress now that we're within the 60-day window, I think. Oh, no, I think it starts tomorrow. So starts tomorrow? Okay, they're all a gang of thieves. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not advocating voting against them or anything. Uh, the... Uh, the uh, uh, McCain is in tension. Uh, we know something about his behavior as a prisoner of war for five and a half years. Uh, that tells us more than we ordinarily know about a character of a presidential candidate. Uh, as in Hillary Clinton, the left in the Democratic Party is quite upset with her. She has not apologized and worn sackcloth and ashes and begged forgiveness for her vote on the Iraq War resolution. Uh, but we also know that she can handle, uh, you know, bounce back from crisis. Uh, she went through the humiliations of her uh, uh, failure of her health care plan, of her uh, husband's uh, disclosures of uh, even more marital infidelities than we had thought, uh, and, uh, and came back to participate in the political arena. I'm not a big fan of hers, but she has shown perseverance and uh, the ability to uh, come back under pressure and after setbacks, which is probably a valuable quality for a president. Um, so I think we're going to get a different cast of characters. Uh, we're going to see uh, the conservative movement uh, likely become less moored to the Republican Party and the Republican president if the Republican president is elected, uh, and more of uh, kind of an independent uh, and more critical uh, formulation. And we, we see some of this on on the immigration issue now, if you listen to talk radio and so forth. So I think we're headed uh, for something different. Uh, and, of course, what Ryan's point about um, the West and, uh, and the possibilities of Republicans taking a more libertarian view, um, neither Rudy Giuliani nor John McCain is a pure libertarian. Uh, by any means, uh, yet uh, on at least some of the issues you could make an argument that they are more so than George Bush. I mean, McCain uh, would veto some spending bills, uh, particularly if it had anything in it for Alaska. Uh, yeah, poor Senator Stevens would have to resign or something, I don't know. Uh, the uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani on the cultural issues... Um, you know, it, would he drop the crusade against gays that uh, Ryan discussed? 
uh, as Ryan recommended? Well, I think so, um, and, and so forth. So uh, there would be something more libertarian. Scott Rasmussen, uh, in his polling, and I'm not supposed to disclose these because this is Rasmussen, it's subscribers, and I paid a bunch of money to get these numbers, and I'm not supposed to tell you them. <laughs> Uh, he paired uh, Clint, uh, McCain and Giuliani against Hillary Clinton and Al Gore um, in something like 26 states. Uh, and looking at those results and extrapolating them, you see those candidates running at about 400 electoral votes at a time when George Bush's job rating is 40 percent or less. Um, and uh, in your western states, for example, Giuliani uh, California, 48-41. Colorado, 52-35. Uh, Wyoming, 61-29. Uh, and so forth. Um, he's obviously um, Washington State, 45-41. Uh, clearly a strong candidate uh, in that area and uh, equaling Bush, if not uh, doing better uh, in some of these states. Uh, so I think that that tends to underline his point that... Uh, Republicans would probably do better by moving somewhat in that direction. Uh, and, in fact, um, you know, if they nominate uh, one of the two candidates who are currently leading in their polls, they will, at least in some issues, uh, tend to move in that direction. Um, the other sort of major criticism I'd make is that, uh, and I think perhaps uncharacteristically for uh, a libertarian audience, um, Ryan uh, tends to concentrate too much on national politics. Uh, we, it, it, the, the framework of the book uh, sort of assumes uh, the Franklin Roosevelt model. Uh, nothing uh, happens in public policy in this country unless Congress passes a bill, preferably a bill proposed by a liberal Democrat like Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson or whatever. Um, but in fact... Uh, one of the things that's been happening is that uh, we have really seen a, a reform bubbling up from states and localities. Uh, Mid-century America, circa 1950, was a country where, which, as Ryan points out in a very good passage, is, uh, was a country prone to centralization, to command, centralized command and control. Big government, big business, big labor. The uh, the success or perceived success of the New Deal and World War II gave immense prestige to the federal government and to the idea of, uh, that the solution to your problems is action by the federal government. Uh, I submit and have written in our country, which David was kind enough to refer to, and I think there's a one-used copy available on Amazon for $3.41, uh, that, uh, that we have moved to become more of a decentralized country, more back, back to the America of Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, decentralized, market-oriented, where our behaviors tend to be uh, uh, along those lines. And if you look at the great public policy successes of the 1990s, welfare reform, crime control. Where did those come from? Did they come from our major universities? No, they're, they're filled with a bunch of left-wing crackpots that give us no help at all. James Q. Wilson, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Uh, the, um, did they come from the federal government? No. 
Uh, they came from people getting out from under the control of the federal government. Welfare reform, Tommy Thompson in Wisconsin, uh, the lead-off person, crime control, Rudy Giuliani in New York City. Uh, there are many other people you can add to the list on those issues of uh, state governors, uh, mayors, um, most of them Republicans, but some of them, Demo- some significant number Democrats as well. Uh, and they basically moved us uh, to great public policy successes uh, towards more uh, choice and accountability. Uh, on education, we've seen a similar view. I mean, Ryan says that we should emphasize school choice. School choice is from the bottom up, too. It came out of Milwaukee and Cleveland and a variety of places. Uh, school choice, um, uh, here in the District of Columbia, uh, the charter school movement is now enrolling 24% of students in the so-called public schools. Uh, we have seen over the last 10 years a, uh, a decline of 20,000 kids in standard public schools and an increase of 15,000 in charter schools. People are voting with their feet with their kids. Um, now, in that case, that was helped along by a federal law since D.C. is quite properly uh, run by the federal government. Uh, in, in, but uh, the fact is that this echoes uh, charter schools, uh, school choice movements of all sorts around the country. Now, there are powerful institutional opponents of this measure, the teachers' unions uh, and the schools of education. Um, one of my proposals is that uh, we should uh, abolish the schools of education. Uh, and were it not for the fact that I'm queasy about capital punishment, I would want to line all the professors along a wall uh, but uh, the, the fact is that, uh, that that has gone forward. I see No Child Left Behind differently from Ryan in that I think that it uh, is an attempt to give some impetus at the federal government uh, to accelerating this process uh, in the wake of uh, strong institutional opposition. Uh, and I think the current battles uh, on this issue are primarily going to go along in the states and localities. How are you going to get uh, choice and accountability? Um, let me just uh, conclude here by saying that I think I, the, the, the biggest basic difference I have with Ryan is that um, he talks about shrinking government and about the failure of the Bush administration, the current Republican Congress, to do this. Uh, my own view is that it's less important uh, to shrink government uh, and more important in, in, in and also f- not very feasible. Uh, and it's more important to promote, as I think Bush has tried to do with varying success, uh, promote choice and accountability. Uh, I think that that tends to strengthen the national character in the way that Ryan pointed out quite well. Uh, we, w- we want to strengthen it, uh, and I think that it, it tends to instill and strengthen Tocquevillian habits of mind uh, in the citizenry, um, the absence of which or the threatening of which was so much a concern of the conservatives of mid-century. Um, the, uh, the, those, uh, I, I think that we are not going to get a solution at the national Basically, uh, shrinking or holding down the size of government uh, remains important. There are two powerful institutional forces working over time in the opposite direction. At the federal level, they are Social Security and the Medicare 
uh, in the medical programs. Uh, at, the, um, at the state and local level, it's the power of the public sector unions. Uh, these people need to be fought up and down the line. Uh, of course, where public sector unions have the most success, uh, people leave the state. Uh, as uh, as people in New York, the state government of New York, and now, as Ryan points out, of California, uh, have found out. Um, but I think uh, many of these fights are not fights of the federal government. They are the fights of local government. Uh, finally, let me just confirm uh, some of uh, Ryan's comments about uh, the West differences between the West and the South. I think he's quite correct in pointing out that the Republicans are not going to make big gains in the South. They already got, they, 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 you know, you take the 11 states of the Confederacy uh, that have 22 senators, there are 18 Republicans and four Democrats. What's the maximum possible gain for the Republicans? Four. Uh, ain't no more to gain. Uh, similar analysis goes for the House seats. Uh, the West, more up for grabs, growing as a percentage. Uh, Rasmussen asked a couple questions. This is your subscriber only, so don't say tell anybody I told you. Um, they, one of them is um, the uh, marriage. Is it uh, between a man or a woman or any two couples? Well, uh, you didn't test all the states. There were two states that a plurality said any two uh, adults, uh, Massachusetts uh, and Vermont, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, but the number in Nevada, 38% said any two people. Colorado, 34. Arizona, 33. Uh, by way of comparison, Arkansas, 14. Alabama, 14. Tennessee, 17. Uh, yes, the South and West are different. And finally, is the Bible true or the Bible not true? Well, 63% of Massachusetts said the Bible is not true. Uh, I don't know if that's the priest scandal or whatever. Uh, and 59% in Vermont. The whole Northeast doesn't believe the Bible is true. Uh, Nevada, 52% say the Bible isn't true. Um, maybe that's because gambling is a big occupation there. Uh, 50% in Colorado, 41% in Arizona. By way of contrast, in Arkansas, it's 18, Alabama, 19, and Tennessee, 21. Uh, so, uh, yes, there are those differences. Um, and I think... Uh, we have to keep in mind that when we're we're not going to elect a president or a Congress that are going to do everything we want to do, and the federal government by itself is not going to do everything uh, we want it to do. An awful lot of change, beneficial change, has come about in America uh, at the state and local level, at the nonprofit voluntary sector level, uh, and for that matter, through profit-making enterprises. Uh, and that, uh, those struggles uh, will continue to go on, whatever the personality uh, and character of our presidential candidates. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. We'll open this up to questions. We're going to bring mics around, so please raise your hand and wait to be identified. <clears throat> you know, somebody told me the other day that Mitt Romney is the only Republican presidential candidate who's only had one wife. Which seems kind of ironic. Which seems kind of ironic, <laughs> but the church changed that law in 1889. So. Yes, yes, I guess that's right. Um, okay, right here. Greenberg, Brinkman Publishing. The state of the, the state of the Republican Party owes, in large part, to the primary process. The primary process 
very low turnout, only highly motivated people. Uh, how do you predict the primary process will affect the 2008 uh, candidates, the rival candidate for the presidency in the Republican Party? Uh, well, you're definitely correct that the you know intensity of belief and intensity of political participation makes a huge difference. I mean, part of why libertarians have so many problems is that people who don't like government and, and who hate government don't get involved in government particularly. Um, you know, I, I wrote a column about this for Real Clear Politics, named after a phrase I actually got from from David about you know libertarians are more interested in you know being out in their hot tub or helping their sister-in-law fix their car instead of you know their hot tub libertarians who won't you know go out to the polls and who won't get involved in local party organizations won't run for positions in them and you know so the so the christian right ends up taking over the party and ends up running a lot of that so i mean looking at 2008 what i think is amazing is um what's uh, what's very hopeful is kind of what michael uh was getting at which is that the two main candidates, Rudy and McCain, are both candidates who would tremendously help uh, with the problem I'm talking about. Both of them would move the party uh, away from the southern wing. Whether they'd be perfectly libertarian, I, I don't I don't think uh, they would be. I think McCain has shown some serious disregard for the First Amendment. Rudy Giuliani joins him in that in uh, supporting campaign finance reform. And, and libertarians don't have such a warm spot in their heart for, for Rudy Giuliani. Uh, just because of his behavior as mayor of New York and, and a lot of what they consider civil liberties violations. I think Rudy might be the most small government conservative we have uh, on the ticket, or possibly on the ticket at this point, um, between his uh, school choice and, and a strong, you know, being able to project, project a lot of strength for the, for the war on terror. I think he uh, or McCain would both really move the party in a small government direction. The question is, you know, how acceptable are, how acceptable are both of them to the primary voters? Uh, you know what? What poll after poll has shown is that remarkably, Rudy Giuliani is kind of unquestionably the front runner. Whether this is because people don't know enough about him yet, that's very hard to say. But I, I actually, a couple of weeks ago, followed him through a, a swing in South Carolina, and you know, I, I asked people who had shown up, and now a self-selected crowd that had come out to see Rudy. But you know, rock rib social conservatives, and they loved this guy, and they knew about his social positions. They didn't care. They said, "I know, you know, I'm I'm pro-life. I know he feels this way, but." I'm voting on the war on terror, and this guy, I just love this guy. He's hes just a great guy. He did such a great job in New York. He's so strong on terror. Uh, McCain does not get that reception from the base that I have that I have seen. He's, um, you know, self-described conservatives prefer Rudy to McCain by a very significant margin, and there's just a lot of built-up distrust of McCain uh, after years of being a maverick, which means, you know, going against your party and, and not to be too harsh, but you know, stabbing your party in the back repeatedly and... and Playing for the you know left wing press, uh, his his constituency is the press, not the Republicans. So you know, just looking at those two candidates, I think uh, they're both a big step up, and I think uh, Rudy has the advantage. What I you know what could happen is I think I think Mitt Romney is actually speaking of Mitt Romney is probably going to be the one who who emerges as the social conservative alternative. At least that's kind of the what I'm seeing from early uh, from early. You know, activists in states like South Carolina, and certainly the conservative press, like National Review, is very in love uh, with Mitt Romney as as a very uh, charismatic <clears throat> social conservative. Question is, do evangelicals accept a Mormon for president? I have no idea. I'd just add that you know, cultural conservatives, religious conservatives, seem to have a veto on the Republican nomination from 1980 to 2000. Uh, I think this is probably no longer the case. There's certainly a powerful, large. 
uh, organizable constituency. Uh, but I think Ryan's comments on Rudy uh, are uh, on the mark. I mean, the fact is, if you're asking a question, that you're saying that the prime task of the next president is to protect us against terrorists, and you want a president who will not only be steadfast in that but will be attentive to details, uh, who do you come up with as number one on your list? I, I think Rudy does. And as for, you know, well, they don't know his liberal stance on cultural issues. They know he was mayor of New York City. Come on. Uh, Absolutely. You know? Uh, and they got to figure that a mayor in New York City is not going to be a, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a Nashville Bible Belt type of conservative. Uh, that's... That's just a given. Uh, I think that his credential, therefore, is is very powerful. Whether it'll succeed, I'm not sure. Uh, Mitt Romney, I have trouble taking seriously because he was three years behind me at the boys' private school I went to in <laughs> Michigan, and so I have this constant image of him as a 14-year-old boy. And I'm surprised when I hear him speak or talk to him, and they find out that this is actually a man of considerable accomplishments, high intelligence, uh, good sense of humor, and so forth. I'm always amazed. So uh, it's like going to your you know 40th reunion. So, uh, but I think uh, you know it. None of them it fits to a T. Uh, you know the, the religious conservatives uh, still have a lot of. Uh, things they want to see happen, but I think it's dawning on them that the federal government is not the way they're going to accomplish a lot of those goals. Yes, they're in the uh, front row. Would you more on the evangelicals, we haven't heard much about them at all this afternoon. Uh, what role they have played are going to play? Well, I mean, I think you know, clearly when you look at Bush's vote totals um, in 2000, 2004, they just are his base of support, and the Republicans have decided that they are pretty much the only group they want to pander to these days. And, and the problem is that pandering with the, to them ends up meaning essentially pander, you know, uh, offending the rest of the party. What, you know, you've seen things like the Terry Schiavo case, which made just, I think, a huge impact in the public psyche about the Republican Party having really gone off the rails with the religious conservatism and whatever one's view of kind of privately whether, you know, what, what should have been done in that case, I think significant portion of the electorate, and I, I think in the West especially, really just saw that as an amazing uh, and immense uh, intrusion into into people's personal lives. And I think that, you know, the role of evangelicals is... I mean, one, one other thing about the role of evangelicals is that as much as we libertarians like to, to gripe and groan, you should listen to them. I mean, they've got you beat when it comes to, to complaining. Um, you know, uh, James Dobson, the um, president of Focus on the Family, who's, of course, one of probably the most important evangelical religious conservative in America, has just, you know, just railed uh, at the Republican Congress in the late 90s about how they had betrayed the voters that brought them to power in 1994, which he defined as Southern evangelicals, which is largely correct. The Southern realignment of Congress is, is why we got it in 94. But, you know, so... so you know, their role is to be perpetually taken for granted, uh, just like the libertarians. And you know, to but at the same time, the you know the general public gets the idea that Bush is is kind of pandering them to them relentlessly. So basically, 
you know, you could see you could see a real turnout depression for the Republicans if the evangelicals feel like they didn't get anything because Bush didn't push the marriage amendment, which he talked about in 2004. Libertarians see everything that's gone on, and nobody except possibly people who are really angry about immigration and, you know, or, or their particular congressional candidate has made a good case on that. You know, nobody turning out except for that issue and perhaps fear of Speaker Pelosi. Uh, though I don't actually think that demonizing Pelosi and Reid is, is going to win this election for the Republicans, despite the fact that the, the National Party seems to think that's the, the way to go. I would think demonizing Alcee Hastings would be better. Well, yeah, I, my own view is evangelicals have played on, on large part uh, a positive role in American politics in the last 25 years. and have, uh, But politics is not the only way you achieve your goals. Uh, in fact, they are achieving some of their goals in the sense that we are a country with less divorce uh, over the last 15 years, uh, un- less uh, uh, you know, uh, children outside of marriage, uh, higher, you know, more uh, traditional social behavior than in many different ways, much lower crime, uh, less violence, uh, fewer auto accidents. Uh, you know, we, we under the moral leadership of Bill Clinton, uh, we improved our morals. Uh, so, uh, you know, some of that is happening out there. Po- people are active in politics are not inclined to, uh, you know, credit any successes. Uh, but in fact, we, David Brooks has written about this, for example. We have become a country that is, uh, you know, tasted... Uh, you know, freedoms to do a lot of what was considered deviant behavior, uh, and for the most part, we have uh, moved away from it. I mean, and, you know, you have uh, gay people, and what are they asking for? Marriage. Actually, if I if I can add one thing to that, I mean, another thing about the evangelical disaffection is. Um, uh, some of you probably know Paul Weyrich, one of the kind of most influential conserv- you know, religious conservatives and a founder of the religious right. You know, when I interviewed him for this book and he talked about his disaffection, part of their answer is is to go to the culture, to say we can't change, the, just like Michael's saying, you can't change the world through politics entirely. As he put it, you know, holy means set apart. We can live set apart and create our own institutions and find our own ways to strengthen society. The homeschooling movement has, of course, grown tremendously. That's that's a key example of this. And he also brought up, uh, which takes maybe different uh, undertones after Mel Gibson's recent uh, problems, but the Passion of the Christ as you know, showing Christian evangelical power in the marketplace and showing that there is a market for a different kind of entertainment that's not as sinful as, as how they see um, normal entertainment. Will and Grace being a particular fixation of the religious right. And that ended, so they just won a big victory. And they have more children than non-religious right people. Mm-hmm. Yes, right down here. I am Tony Quain. Uh, my question is about the difference between evangelicals and libertarians on social policy. Um, it seems that maybe a lot of the uh, the supposed differences, uh, when you look closer, they really aren't there. Um, uh, as far as nominating federal judges, evangelicals believe in strict constructionists. As far as uh, racial preferences, they believe in rejecting racial preferences for for sex and race. As far as ex- acceptance of being forced to accept gay marriage or um, uh, sexual orientation in... in uh, um, uh, employment discrimination laws, uh, they reject that. 
and in stem cell research. They um, reject federal funding of stem cell research. All of these are libertarian positions. So isn't a lot of the supposed difference between evangelicals and libertarians on social policy folk, folk theorem or folk wisdom and not reality? Well, I think the, the examples you bring up show that fusionism is still viable. I mean, that's one important thing to remember. There are a lot of ways to look at these issues and to construct them so that we can find common ground. But I, I think the shift that's happened, um, and I kind of I devote a chapter to this in the book, is that, you know, the there has been a shift. The, during the older days of fusionism, social conservatives were very committed to, to small government. But at a certain point, and, you know, that's because they saw the federal government as the main threat. They saw things like... Uh, decisions uh, creating forced busing and decisions banning prayer in school these were the real where the real threat was coming from but i think now it has a lot more to do with with various social conservatives seeking something from the federal government you see groups like focus on the family senators like rick santorum you know the agenda that they're pushing isn't about keeping the federal government away from you and away from your morals and away from your kids it's about having the government teach abstinence education instead of real sex education. It's about having them teach the schools teach intelligent design instead of evolution. And, you know, uh, things like um, faith-based initiatives, which is an, essentially uh, an attempt to spread them out around money to black churches and swing states, but, you know, which entangles, you know, the federal government with uh, private charity, and which is, by the way, uh, an initiative that uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore with bo- were both perfectly comfortable, and we might even have a bigger faith-based initiative if Gore had been elected. So, there, you know, and, you know, as far as gay marriage, you know, the social conservatives aren't saying, you know, laissez-faire. They're saying we want a federal amendment saying no state can institute gay marriage. So I think I think fundamentally that's an issue where you really you really can't paint them as, as in agreement. So, you know, again, I, I think there are definitely ways to look at this. I think the, that, you know, both agree on strict constructionist judges is very important. It's going to be a very important way for a Rudy Giuliani or a John McCain to to calm down the social conservative base because the so, a lot of the social conservative base has realized that all that matters when it comes down to it is who they get on the Supreme Court because their only issues are, are trying to strike down Roe versus Wade and and uh, and, gay, and make sure gay marriage doesn't get ratified by the Supreme Court in a decade or so. Let's take one last question here. question had to do with, you had mentioned the idea of letting go of moral enforcement, basically. Do you see eventual economic consequences of that, especially in like a civil liberties versus security issue? And if that's the case, then do you see the Republican Party, if we let go of that, eventually merging with the Democratic Party so that we start at square one anyway? I'm sorry, fiscal, fiscal um, implications of letting go of our, the moral crusade? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure. I understand what you mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, like, if we were to let go of some of the moral issues, like medical marijuana, do you see that we would eventually have economic implications from letting go of those moral? That it would issues? create so much social that decay that it so would lead much economic. to. Uh, well, I mean, that's certainly. You know, I think that just comes down to the fundamental difference of opinions between social conservatives and libertarians. That if we didn't have some of these laws, that we would just end up in kind of uh, bedlam and, and chaos. I don't particularly agree that ending the drug war would lead to would lead to that or uh, having gay marriage or any of these other conservative social policies would lead to that i think um talking about the republicans merging with the democrats i mean i think you do see a real convergence at least on the issue of of um, the size of government between the republicans and and the democrats and i think you know there is there is 
this libertarian and even just social moderate uh, part of the American electorate that feels underserved. Everyone's always talking about a third party. Now, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen unless you know John McCain decides to go that route. He, he might be one of the people that could do that, or Michael Bloomberg, who has the money to finance it all himself, uh, could do that. But other than them, I don't really expect that to be an issue. And I think these, these issues are going to have to be worked out within the two-party framework. Um, I can see the Democratic Party essentially ceasing to exist as it is and have to be replaced by kind of a new coalition because their current coalition hasn't proved workable. But um, that's, that's probably some years off. Social decay? I don't know. I think it's uh, – it, does that cost money? Uh, you can cite examples on either side. I mean, the Dutch legalized marijuana, and they've remained a uh, uh, productive economy and everything. But then they're Dutch. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <coughs> you know, they, they, you know they, they live in a country that's underwater, and under, unlike New Orleans, they build levees that work, uh, unlike the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, you know, what's the effect of heavy drug use on black neighborhoods in central cities? Uh, a lot of social costs there, and, uh, you know, we've, we've actually seen a diminution of this. But um, it's, it, it, once again, I think uh, the story is not just uh, federal. The story is the larger, is local, is uh, non-public sector as well as public sector. Uh, the society's changing. Will the Republican Party merge with the Democratic Party? No, thank goodness. I'd be out of a job. And, uh, they, well, they're two different animals. They would not, uh, they, they basically uh, have different histories. And one of the things I found that's interesting in covering politics in other countries, and, you know, we say the British Labor Party is like the Democratic Party. Well, it's not. Each party that's been developed over the years has its own personality and character that evolves over time and in response to the workings of electoral politics, uh, and they're all different. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Uh, let me thank Michael Barone for being here to uh, offer some astute commentary on the book. And let me tell you that Ryan Sager's book is a good read. Whether or not you agree with it, you will enjoy reading it. And there are copies outside, and there's lunch outside. Let's adjourn.